what are we talking about when we want diversity and inclusion? Just what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about something that was defined by a consulting firm like McKinsey or Deloitte or something that, you know, a newscaster says is, is needed? What are we talking about first? You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. In his debut novel, Matteo Ascarapur challenges assumptions about race and opportunity in the workplace and what it means to see people and value their potential when they don't follow a typical path up the ladder. Black Buck is a highly anticipated novel released this week. I'll be back in a moment with Matteo Ascarapur. A much-anticipated debut novel was just released. Matteo Ascarapur is the author of Black Buck, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Ascarapur's writing has appeared in Lit Hub, Electric Literature, Entrepreneur, The Rumpus, Catapult, and Medium. He was a Rhode Island Writer's Colony writer-in-residence. I've been watching the novel earn glowing early reviews. A comment I noticed repeatedly was, after finishing the novel, readers felt as though they had gone on a journey. Joining me from New York to discuss his debut novel, Black Buck, is Matteo Ascarapur. Matteo, welcome to Real Fiction. Thanks so much for having me, Lori. Well, I love a debut novel, and there is so much to unpack in this book, including a unique structure, which in in moments feels like this very cool sales manual. And on one page, there is a note to the reader. It's about a third of the way through the book. And it says, every great salesperson has to go through tough times in order to find out what they're made of. The best thing to do is to try to come out as unscathed as possible, but to never forget the experience. Pain is a powerful teacher. All right, so we have this amazing protagonist, Darren Vender. He is a brilliant young man from Brooklyn. He skipped college and works as a barista at a Starbucks on Park Avenue in New York City. So his really sharp observations of people lead to a unique opportunity when he's challenging the coffee order of a powerful tech startup titan. So already early early on, I know that I need to brace for this intense sort of sales psychology experience. What can you tell us about this character, Darren? Darren, um, he, he's not exactly your everyman, but he comes close to it. As you said, he was valedictorian of a prestigious high school in New York City, but he's also working as a shift supervisor at Starbucks. Right? We would typically think that someone with his background in terms of his, his academic prowess would go on to an Ivy League, and then he would become a high-powered executive at a, a bank or another Fortune 500 company. But that's just not how it always goes. There's so many of us who are highly intelligent, highly educated, whether academically or in some other way, right? There, there are people who are 
genius bakers, genius painters, uh, genius thinkers in general, but, uh, but they don't have the, the, the three little letters next to their name, whether it's PhD or, or something else. Um, so I created Darren as someone who had so much potential, but that that potential in the eyes of America was unfulfilled. And I think that that's something that a lot of us can relate to. We have ambition, uh, we have latent, um, latent dreams and, and latent goals, but we sometimes just need someone to activate them. And, and that's what's happening in this book. It's, it's centered around the question of what happens when someone who so many people claim has incredible potential is finally given the chance to fulfill it in a very extreme way, but without the proper guidance. There are times when an opportunity is presented and it's not always easy. It's not always a straightforward decision to just say yes. There's this incredible opportunity that comes and there's a there's a process, there's a hesitation. And what what did you find when you were writing Darren and what what it feels like when an opportunity comes your way and you you're just, you know, you have to think about it for a bit. Yeah, that's a great question. And just touching on Darren a little bit, he he has to be endearing to the reader in some way because what what I found with many readers is that for a large portion of the book, they don't like him. They actually detest him, and, and that was intentional. But what's most endearing about Darren, from my perspective, is his voice, is his ability to see the humor in a horrific situation, um, as well as uh, his single-mindedness pursuit of success, which at, at times is to his detriment and to the detriment of those who love him. But in terms of an opportunity, we're going to get a little existential for a second, Lori, because in my opinion, and it feels so weird to even say this, but I feel like I can't fully speak for Darren. He, he feels like a fully formed person, even though he, he's just uh, an identity constructed on the page. In terms of the existential question of why am I here, Darren never really asked himself that. Like, why are we here? Why, not, not why am I a ship supervisor at Starbucks, but why am I living? What's the purpose? And, and when you don't have to ask yourself that question, that question is not at the forefront of your mind, um, it's most likely because you're a little comfortable. So when Rhett, this sharp-tongued, suave, good-looking white dude comes in and presents that question to Darren in the form of an opportunity, do you want to be more? Do you want to really take control of your life? Um, it's scary. <laughs> I think a lot of us in that type of scenario, it, it'd be scary. Right. And, and that, that's what's happening here. And that's where the hesitancy comes from, because I think Darren knows whether consciously or not that taking Rhett's opportunity will drastically change him, who he is and his life. Darren takes this opportunity that Rhett offers him. He can't get over how many people at this company, the, the name of the company is called Someone, spelled S-U-M-W-U-N. Um, he can't get over the fact that these people who have gone into Starbucks multiple times a day don't recognize him. So that comes into the character profile as well, that we don't see people. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's a somewhat literal play of when non-black people say, well, black people look alike to me. <laughs> All of them look the same, you know? Uh, so it, it was a play on that to show what happens when we actually see that unfold on the page. And, and maybe these uh, couple hundred people who worked at that 
someone, which is on the 36th floor of the same building that the Starbucks is located in, you know, don't see Darren because he's black. Maybe they don't see him just because he's wearing an apron and he is, you know, in the service industry. Um, but it was important for me to show how much we, uh, how much we often devalue people that uh, we believe only serve certain roles in our lives, whether it's the cleaner, the janitor, the nurse, you know, my mom's a nurse, um, things like that. And we see the flip side of this in a way that begins really funny and then, you know, turns to head scratching, like, is this, does this actually happen? When people say, has anyone ever told you, Darren, that you look like Martin Luther King? And then they say, has anyone ever told you that you look like Malcolm X? Right. And then we go to Dave Chappelle, we go to Sidney Poitier, we go to Drake. None of these people look like, Laurie, I almost threw an Oprah for a second, just to really hit home the point. But then I said, all right, maybe that's too far. There were a lot of those moments while writing this when I said, all right, man, you're, you're going a little too far. Like, you, you got to reel it back a little bit. Well, you're quite right. Um, I think that happens all the time. We undervalue people who work in the service industry. And what's remarkable about Darren's trajectory, which is so sudden, I mean, he goes from working in Starbucks um, to working in this tech startup. And, you know, first of all, I had to say when I finished this, just when I was finishing the novel, there was this very interesting um, article in the Wall Street Journal about startups are still booming, you know, despite COVID. And, you know, it's changing the landscape of Austin, Texas, for example. And I think there's just a lot of curiosity about the culture of these tech startups. In Black Buck, there is this, what I would describe as kind of a powerful spiritual cocktail in that office. And I mean, goodness, the conference rooms are referencing world religions. There's a conference room named Quran, another one named Bhagavad Gita. And Rhett, the boss, is quoting scripture and dropping the F-bomb in the same sentence. <laughs> and there's a distinction between motivation and inspiration when you're trying to sell, God, the unsellable. What did you observe during your time working in this environment and how people are cultivated to sell? Mm, cult. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack here, right? You you brought up motivation, inspiration. Um, I look at those words as disguises from manipulation. Uh, and and manipulation, it the it, the connotation is very negative, but I also view it as just change or transformation in some way. So to back it up a little bit, you're 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 right. Um, a place like Austin. I have friends in Austin that work in startups. It's booming. There are so many of these different hubs that are sprouting up, not only in uh, the United States, but around the world. And to many people, tech startups and what happens in them, it, it's so mysterious, so esoteric, unless you're actually there. Uh, if I were to ask a random person, hey, what comes to mind when you think of a tech startup? They may say white guys in hoodies and flip-flops. Right, like like Mark Zuckerberg and people like that, and that's about it. But if I start throwing out all these acronyms, and there's only a little bit of that in the book because this book is not about a tech startup. But if I throw out all these acronyms, you know, some people, Lori, have said, "Did you make those up?" And I I didn't. Like when you're working in some of these tech startups, acronym speak is a big thing. But in terms of my own experience, I did experience what we could call religiosity within the workplace. The line between cult and culture is so fine. And with so many of these startups, you're saying they're booming, 
Um, that's likely because venture capitalists, you know, they want to, to make money uh, despite COVID and everything that's happening to the economy. Um, that also is because startups, they're so American. They represent the American dream and the American spirit of pioneering something new and setting yourself apart from everyone else. So in order to achieve these lofty aims, when most startups fail within the first three months of, of being founded, you need to create this almost religious fervor. Or excuse me, you don't need to create, but many people believe that you do. So what do you do? You have a mission statement. Everyone that's hired needs to be aligned with that mission. Some organizations have standard operating procedures, which is basically an employee conduct guideline. Um, but it's phrased in different ways of like, these are our team values. You have to live into these teams. Hmm. There is the <laughs> the religious garb, which is the branded startup year, right? I, I I present that in a humorous way with the character of Frodo when he gets all the startup gear. He's wearing everything from the socks to the to the slippers to the backpack while he's sitting to the hat to the sunglasses. But I'll tell you, in my apartment right now, I worked at a tech startup uh, about four years ago. I have maybe fifteen articles of clothing from that company still. Like branded clothing? Branded clothing, t-shirts, hats. I even have some football gear from that that was bought one time for, for an event that we had. It's, oh, interesting. It's wild. So, so the thing is, all this just reinforces the mission, the, the identity of the company and you as part of this constituency, if we're going to keep it in religious terms. Um, so not all startups are like this, but many of them are because they believe that you need to not only drink the Kool-Aid, but that the Kool-Aid has to taste good in order for you to survive and for the company to thrive. And with the character of Rhett, despite us discussing all this religiosity, what I found in my experience is that the discussion of religion, out of many other things, is extremely taboo in the world of startups, as is race, right? We're seeing a reckoning right now with everything that's happening. And people are saying, oh, we found out that, you know, Google and all these companies don't really have any black or brown people. I mean, we, you know this if you'd work in, if you worked in startups and if you worked in tech. But when it comes to religion, people don't really talk about it. When a person working in a tech startup is fully committed to the cause, there, there is that religious element, but there's also, as it comes through in Black Buck, an element of addiction. First of all, in this book, I have never seen a more comprehensive takedown of coffee addiction in my life. And I have lost friends over this discussion. So I find it very brave that you took that on. Wow. But, but what happens is that everyone in the book has some kind of addiction to deal with, whether it's coffee, um, the hit of making a sales mark, drugs. How did, how did you think about addiction when you were writing this novel? Lori, I'm going to let you know a little secret. I detest coffee. So there was, there was no bravery required for me to take it down. I respect it as an, an indigenous plant for sure, but uh, I don't drink that. In terms of addiction, this is the first time someone's actually asked me this question in this way, so uh, I'm grateful for it. We, we see that winning, again, something very American, which, which I appreciate, um, and in a lot of ways I like it, but winning is addicting. And at one point in the book, Darren, who's most likely become Buck at this point, says, be careful of winning. It can be one of the most dangerous things. So we see it just like, just like, you know, taking a hit of a drug. When you 
when you get someone on the phone, and I experienced this, I experienced this hundreds, if not thousands of times when I was making sales calls, Lori, when you call up a stranger, either halfway around the world or across the country, out of the blue, you get them on the phone, and then you eventually um, have them give you their credit card or set time for a, a longer meeting. When this person didn't know you from Adam, you know, 20 minutes ago, it's addicting. You feel powerful as hell. You're like, wow, this person who could be older than me, more educated, has more money, would possibly look down on me if they, if they came across me in the street and not give me a second of their time. I just basically influenced them to do what I wanted. That's you know somewhat of a nefarious way of looking at it, but not so much if you believe that you are helping them and that your product can actually serve them and it's not just a money grab. Um, so addiction, you know, as you said, it, it plays at the heart of this book, and it, it comes down to the thought or the theory that we are self-interested beings, and what will we do to preserve ourselves and to help ourselves at the sake of others. My guest today is Matteo Ascarapur. He is the author of Black Buck. It was just released by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You know, Matteo, it it's hard to categorize this book. And these categories are marketing decisions. But it feels a little inaccurate to me to describe Black Buck as satire, though some of the early readers have said the same thing, or they've said it's hyper satire, or, or it's this or it's that. But knowing it people in tech and finance, it seems to me you've created a kind of an amped up version of reality. How do you categorize this novel? It's hard to, I, I typically don't. I say, you know, read it and then you tell me what you think. Because you're right. When I began writing this book, I didn't think of it as a satire. That's something that um, not even just my publisher, but other people before we got there slapped onto it. And there are most definitely satirical elements, but there are also elements of a romance. It turns into a thriller by the end of it, <laughs> like a de- and like a detective novel. So it, it's really all over the place. And I'm happy because of that, you know, that it doesn't adhere to one genre and not because that means there's something in there for everyone, but because in, in my mind or in my hopes, at least it upends people's perceptions of writing and novels, you know, having to be one thing um, in order to sell. So with this book, in the beginning of our conversation, you said that many people describe it as a journey. (laughs) There are also people who, likely feels like it's a hostage situation because they never know what's like what's going to happen <laughs> next when the gun's going to go off there are multiple climaxes that are honestly partially inspired by mob movies where where these monsters always want to do a new and bigger heist i wanted there to be a bigger and bolder climax um for the people in the book to face and for the reader to enjoy reading but my biggest hope um and and maybe this was what was driving me including so many different types of of writing in there, is that regardless of what someone thinks by the time they finish the book, they will have felt not only one thing, but many things. You were writing this book before we had quite a busy summer, a real reckoning as the Black Lives Movement unfolded. And Darren, as we've discussed in this conversation, is the only Black salesman at the company, someone. What might we be missing from the conversation in the workplace as it relates to race versus diversity 
And are you hopeful for change in the coming years? Yeah, I think um, what's missing is actual thought. And that sounds a little harsh, but it's like, um, what, are, what are we talking about when we want diversity and inclusion? Just what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about something that was defined by a consulting firm like McKinsey or Deloitte or something that, you know, a newscaster says is, is needed? What are we talking about first? And, and it's important to just define it within your own organization because it may not look the same in, in all organizations. You may have a bunch of men in your organization and a bunch of black men, but then where are the black and brown women, right? Or the women in general. So I think that first people need to write it down on paper. What does it mean to you? And then perform some serious self-interrogation of, do I believe that this needs to change? Because what, what I found, Lori, uh, especially from this summer, but also in the past, is there's a lot of lip service. And it, it's like a lot of organizations are reading from the same um, textbook when they say, we're listening and we want to learn. And we understand that there are problems that we need to rectify. Sure. But what, what, what are those problems? And do you actually believe they need to change? Because what I'm most fearful of is that people know in their minds that things need to change, but not in their hearts. So what do they do? They change some actions. They hire a couple black and brown people, whatever. But then what happens when those black and brown people um, face adversity in the organization? Does the organization gaslight them? Or does the organization say, wow, you know, hiring a couple tokens to, to darken up the place wasn't really the, the solution. We actually need to fix the place first. Um, an analogy that, that I've thought about is, and this is, this is going to sound a little wild, um, and I've been pretty good this whole interview, but it's, it's like, right, it's like introducing healthy patients to a sick ward. Hmm. Right? Like, what's going to happen? They're not going to make the rest of the patients healthy. And I understand that that's a little harsh, and I'm not trying to say that people in these organizations are sick. That's not what I'm saying. But it, it's just an extreme analogy. Now, in terms of the future, I am hopeful. I have to be hopeful. It's just, it's, I don't have to be. It's also just how I'm wired. Um, do I get angry about the injustices that happen in this nation and around the world? Do they shake me to my core? Do I cry about them sometimes? Most definitely. But my default isn't anger. It's not sadness. It's not desperation. It's action. And action, for me, um, is the definition of hope. As I said earlier, Matteo, one of the things that um, hit me hardest as I read this book is the the reminder to see people and how important it is to make people feel seen. But I'd like to ask you about some of the work you do with an organization called Defy Ventures and how it shaped your views on opportunities, feeling seen. Yeah, most definitely. So Defy Ventures is an organization that works with currently and previously incarcerated, incarcerated individuals um, to help them build and maintain businesses. And I thought about Defy Ventures because when I was working at a tech startup um, around 2015, they had actually used our services. So I reached out to them and I began a dialogue. And, you know, in short time, I was running workshops. Um, this was pre-COVID. So I was running workshops with people in person. And the workshops were related to things that, you know, I'd learned in, in the world of tech, like sales, writing compelling email campaigns, thinking about your first hire, thinking about how you build a culture, right, uh, effectively and, and, and based on your own values, as well as, um, 
as well as bringing in where I am in my life right now. The first workshop that we did was on the power of storytelling. And I had everyone in the room, the first session, there was about eight people tell their own story. First, I had them write it down. And then I said, if you don't mind, get up in front of everyone without what you wrote down and just tell us <laughs> because I don't want you to use that as a crutch. All right. And that, and that was to have them uh, speak authentically to their own experience and, and really own it. And um, working with these individuals has been one of the, the, the greatest gifts of my year uh, of 2020, a year that feels very giftless um, and, you know, seldom full of joy. And when COVID hit, I wasn't running these workshops anymore. They asked me, they said, do you want to run these workshops virtually? And I try to live my life as authentically as possible. I said, no, not really. I just don't think that they would be as effective over the screen. But what I think would be cool is to interview these entrepreneurs in training. That's what they're referred to, EITs, um, these entrepreneurs in training, because the discussion revolves around a lot of statistics and hearsay and people who aren't them or haven't been incarcerated, you know, at the head of the organization talking about um, these people that we're serving. But why not hear about their, their lives and their own journeys and their businesses directly from them? So uh, I started this interview series where I interviewed them over Zoom and then we put it, we put the videos together and we would use it to get the word out about the five, but more importantly, educate people on what it's like to be incarcerated from people who have lived it. I haven't lived it. I have no idea what it's like. And I'm not looking to gain a glimpse where I say, oh, great, now I know. But just I want to learn about these people. I want to learn about um, this system of oppression and how it's affected them and then systems of, liber of liberation and how we can work together um, to, to better them, themselves and their lives. And one of the greatest joys is having these people say, I've never done this before. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell my story. Mm. And I think that that comes back to what you were saying, Lori. They, they felt seen. They felt like their voice mattered. And beyond anything, whether receiving more money for their businesses, receiving mentoring, um, receiving a pat on the back, many of them seem to say that just having my humanity valued and knowing that I am worthy of a real first chance at life uh, means everything. And they felt comfortable sharing things that are quite vulnerable in the in the service of education and understanding. Exactly, and and it's important for me. Um, I never went in like you don't you don't ask them what you do, you know. Even though you might think it, right? Again, like, you're like, oh, what does this person do? But you don't ask it because that's not who they are. They're not whatever they did. Who they are is the person that you're seeing in this moment of someone trying to move forward and and better their lives and help other people. And that, that's exactly what they're trying to do. So I wanted to make the space for them uh, to know that I'm not judging them whatsoever. Uh, I'm extremely interested in their businesses just you know, due to my own background in business. And I am also extremely interested in their story and them telling it as authentically as possible. My guest today is Matteo Escarapur. He is the author of Black Buck. It is a newly released debut novel. So Matteo, I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today. It's been enlightening and a real pleasure. This was so fun. Thank you for your time, Lori.
You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. You can find me there and on social media. Join us each Wednesday at noon on WERA 96.7 and streaming on WERA.FM. Thanks for listening.